I think if we went around the, the room and asked this question, we could probably all share different times in our life when we have been uh, greatly humbled. Uh, at least I could. I don't, I don't know if we maybe you don't want to even think about that, but different times in our life when things have happened where suddenly, uh, maybe even in an instant, uh, things change in a, in a radical way in the sense of you're aware of maybe your shortcomings or different things or you see it differently. And uh, as I was thinking about that question and just kind of wrestling with that uh, this week, uh, there were two things in my mind that stood out that are kind of seared in my mind, I guess. Uh, the first was uh, uh, I was 16 years old. Uh, the summer before, uh, I guess, my junior year in high school, uh, I went to uh, a Nike five-star basketball camp in Trenton, New Jersey. And so uh, I got to go to this camp, and I was really excited for this week, and I was pretty pumped. I had this attitude of, like, I'm going to show them how good I am, and it's going to be great, and I can't wait to go. And uh, it, was, it was a fun time, and it was great, and I enjoyed it. But I vividly remember the first day of camp playing a game in the afternoon at Trenton State College on an outdoor court. It's really hot outside. I think it was July. And one of my teammates made a pass that got stolen, and I was at the top, so I ran back on defense. And I got back, and right as I turned around, a guy was jumping towards me. And all I saw was him go over my head. He jumped over me, literally jumped over me. He flies over me, dunks it two hands, swings off the rim, lands, and I'm just standing there. This guy literally just jumped over me. And in an instant, I went, I'm not really that great at basketball. Where am I? Like, this is a whole nother world that I remember kind of sheepishly like, what just happened? And the game goes on. I think we lost. After the game, uh, a, a guy comes up to me and he goes, hey, I, don't feel bad, buddy. It's, it's okay. He's like, that was Roderick Rhodes. And I was like, well, who's Roderick Rhodes? Well, it turns out Roderick Rhodes was a McDonald's All-American first team, played at Kentucky, and then he played in the NBA for 13 years. And so it became very apparent to me in that moment, this humility of like, that guy is a basketball player in a way I will never be a basketball player. But that was the first one. The, the second one, fast forward maybe, maybe 10 years later, uh, I'm in a seminary class, and I'm probably 26 now. And I remember, it's one of my favorite classes. It was a class that uh, uh, Dr. Larkin taught on the book of Acts, and we had these different um, uh, assignments. Take a passage, you're supposed to kind of do a bunch of reading, do your homework, your study, and then come, and you're going to kind of give your interpretation and your different thing. And so I remember sitting in the class and going in and kind of confidently like, this is what it is, and I've done my study, and I know... And walking in, and if you would have asked me right before class begun about different interpretations, I would have said, oh, that's ridiculous, and that's ridiculous, and here's why, and all these things. And I went in there, and I sat down, and friends who were classmates uh, that I'd gotten to be friends with in this class started to represent different interpretations, kind of different streams of thought that I would have said were ridiculous. But as I listened to them, all of a sudden I realized that they were arguing very persuasively from the Bible, from their study, from thinking through what Scripture says, showing a different side than maybe I had considered. And then all of a sudden I was really aware that most of the people in the classroom were way smarter than I am. And so kind of like on the basketball court, the same thing in the classroom, like, oh, no. <laughs> Here I was so confident and I've figured this out and I've got this. And all of a sudden it's like, maybe I don't. There's a lot of really smart people here that love Jesus and love the Lord and love the Bible and they're seeing it differently than I am. And so both of those times were really humbling but at the same time, I would say both of those were helpful in a lot of ways, a much needed dose of humility, and that's a good thing. And so I say that to say this, this week has been kind of like that. 
uh, as I've been wrestling with Romans 9. Uh, Romans 9 is a difficult passage, and there's a lot of things there. And just uh, coming to it today and as we open it together and we think about it as after praying and wrestling with God and looking at this all week, uh, two things I just want to say before we jump into it. One, we always want to seek to rightly handle God's word, study ourselves approved, handling it correctly and in context and what it says. We don't want to be misrepresenting God in anything. And so I pray that that is the case as we look at it today. Uh, the way I'm going to present it and the way I'm going to tell you is in keeping with our doctrine statement as a church. It's in line with Reformed churches kind of throughout history. I think it holds. I would even make the argument that I think it holds Scripture together most cohesively. It goes with a lot of things that we have to wrestle with in Scripture. But I would also say to all of us, there are people that are much smarter than me on both sides of kind of interpretation of this passage. And so we should come to it with great humility as we study God's Word together. But then the second thing I would say is, as we look at it and the message that's here and what Paul seems to be clearly saying, is it's radically humbling in what he's saying. And it challenges us. And it can kind of knock us for a loop. We read through and go, is he really saying that? And is that really what Scripture teaches? And so I would just encourage you, if that is the case for you today, that you hear some of the things that Paul's saying and we're wrestling through it, and you go, I don't know about this, or I'm not sure I like this, or I'm not sure how this all fits together, I would just remind you what I said last week, that God calls us to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so don't check out. Go, well, I don't think that's right. I'm done with that. We need to continue to wrestle through. So just see this as the the first part. We're going to look at this again next week. These are going to be ongoing conversations. None of us grasped God and his purposes in a moment. It is a lifelong pursuit. And so we should all come to that with great humility. So with that said, we're going to jump into Romans chapter 9. Last week we recapped 1 to 8. I'm not going to do that again. You can go back and listen to that from last week if you need to. This week I want us to jump into chapter 9, but just quickly reminder from what we talked about last week. Chapters 1 through 8, Paul presents this cohesive treatise on salvation, that he brings us to this place and it culminates that we are safe in Jesus because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Our righteousness is not our own, it is Jesus and we are secure in him. And so he he tells us, those that he calls and he brings in and he justifies and he glorifies and he's showing us and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But then as we turn to chapter 9, it almost stops and his argument kind of changes. It shifts. And he's anticipating a question. And we talked about this just briefly last week. But I think if we were to summarize the question, it's this. If he's saying that nothing can separate those that are called into God's family from him and his love What about all these Jews that are not believing? What about these Israelites, this people that God had called to himself? Why are so many not believing? And so we could say it this way. Why does only a small part of Israelites believe in Jesus when the message should be clearest to them? And so Paul anticipates that his audience is going to have that question. And so he starts there and and he's saying, I have great anguish for those that are not believing. And And he goes through this. But then he starts to unfold his reasoning as to why the word of God has not failed. You see that right at the beginning of verse 6. But it's not, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then he's going to make four arguments. We're going to look at the first two today. But he makes these four arguments. The first one is he's going to say, uh, it's not that the promises of God have failed because not all of Israel is Israel. We'll look at that this morning. 
The second one, he's going to say it's not because God is unfair in granting mercy. And that's the second one we'll look at today. And then the next two we'll look at next week, and the third, which are this. It's not because God is unfair in holding us accountable. And then the last one, it's going to say it is because Israel has sought the way of salvation uh, through their works and nationality rather than faith alone. And so we're going to take the first two today, but there's a lot in what Paul says. There's a lot of kind of heavy, weighty things here as we start. And so go back with me for just a second to Romans chapter 8, because it's been a while since we were were in chapter 8, before Christmas. And in Romans chapter 8, if you look there at verse 28, uh, Paul says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Or verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elected? It is God who justifies. And so he he, he grounds this. Uh, what we often refer to as the unbreakable chain there, that, that God who predestines, calls, and who, who, who calls, justifies, and those he justifies, he glorifies, that each person that he calls into that, he's going to bring to the completion. And that's a huge part of what he's saying in Romans chapter 8. That's why we're secure and we're resting in that. But then this question comes of, of what about these Israelites that were called, that were part of God's people, and he brought them in. And now so many are not believing in Jesus. They, they've not seen Jesus as the Messiah. And so Paul's going to give his answer. And so he's going to say, and the first thing he's going to say is that God's promises have not failed. And so look at what he says in verse 6 down to verse 9. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's kind of his thesis. He's saying they haven't failed because not all of Israel is Israel. And now he's going to give us two examples as to why he says that. So the first example, verse 7, because not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. At this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, as Paul often does, he's going to make his case from the Old Testament. He's going to show you clearly from Scripture why he's saying what he's saying. But he's also writing to an audience that knows the Old Testament much better than the average person does today. So he's kind of summarizing some things, assuming we have some knowledge. And so I want us to go back for just a second. Think about what he's talking about here, what he's making reference to when he talks about Isaac and Abraham and Sarah and what's happening there. And so he's obviously talking about Abraham. Uh, the father of the Israelites, the father of the Jewish nation, this man that God calls, and he calls him out in Genesis 12, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you with a great number of descendants, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless the world through your seed. That's what we call the Abrahamic covenant, and you first see that in Genesis chapter 12. And so he calls Abraham out, and he says, I'm going to do these things, and this is going to happen, and Abraham says, okay, and he follows God, and he goes to where he tells him to go. And he picks up his family and moves. At that point, Abraham's 75 years old. His wife is 65, and she is barren, and she's never had children. But he says, you're going to have a great number of descendants. Abraham says, okay. 
Well, time passes. Uh, we get to Genesis 15. About 10 years have now passed. And Abraham and Sarah still don't have children. And God comes to him again and says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. He takes him outside. He says, look at the stars. You're going to have as many uh, descendants as there are stars in the sky. And Abraham goes, yeah, that's great. Still don't have kids. He says, is it going to come through my servant? Maybe my servant, is that what's going to happen? And God says, no, it's going to come from you. He literally says it's going to come from your loins, from your body. You're going to have a child that is yours. It's in Genesis 15:4, And so... In 15.6, Abraham believes him, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Chapter 4 of Romans, saved by putting their faith in Abraham, Abraham putting his faith in what God could do, not what he can do, right? Saved by faith, so God grants to him his righteousness. We looked at that already in Romans. But yet, still no child. And so then right after that, Abraham and Sarah decide, well, Maybe the way that we're supposed to do this, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, maybe you should take my maidservant, Hagar, and have a child with her, because obviously I can't have children. And so they go, okay. Which, by the way, if you read that passage, they never pray and ask God if that's the plan. But they do that. And so they have this baby, Ishmael. And of course, you don't have to be uh, a marital counselor to know that's going to cause all sorts of problems, and it does in their relationship and a whole lot of things. But they have this baby. Time goes on. Seems like, well, maybe this is the child of the promise. But then God shows up again. Abraham is now 99 years old, almost 25 years since that first promise. And he shows up and he tells Abraham again, you're going to have a child that I'm going to bless. And all these blessings are coming through. And Abraham says, wait a second, I have Ishmael. What about Ishmael? And he says, no, it's not Ishmael. Sarah is going to have a son. And actually, that's what what Paul is, is quoting here. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And that's what God says. And so that's what happens. A year later, comes back. Sarah has Isaac. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah is 90. They now have this baby and this is the child of the promise. Well, that's the story. That's the background. Now, now read again what Paul says, just having that fresh in your mind. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And so Ishmael is Abraham's son from his flesh. Father Abraham, the the one who God chooses to start the nation of Israel. This is his flesh and blood son, Ishmael. And he's saying he's not the son of the promise. That it's all going to go to Isaac. And so he's showing us that it's just very literally not all of Israel belongs to Israel, not all of Abraham's descendants. So he's giving you a very concrete example of that. But then he gives you a second example. And so look at the second example, he says, verse 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so again, you have to have a little bit of background about what's happening here and who he's talking about. And so uh, Rebecca is now Isaac, Abraham's son, and Rebecca get married. So this is Abraham's son and then his grandchildren. They get pregnant and she's having twins. 
right? And so these, that's what they're talking about, Abraham's grandsons, and so Jacob and Esau. And so he's talking about it, but here's a question I want us to ask. He just told us this. He just made this point. Why does he give us another example? Why does he now go down and give us another example? And I think what he's doing is he's further clarifying his point. He wants to make sure that we understand what he's saying here. See, with his first example, he says uh, it's Isaac and not Ishmael. And we could easily say in the first example, well, they had different mothers. God's promise was always to Abraham and to Sarah by kind of default. It's his wife, obviously. But maybe it's because they went outside of that and this has to do with nationality. It's different mothers and this is not the same thing. Or maybe if we just had the first example, we might say, well, Ishmael grows up and he's 12, 13 years old by the time that God comes back and says, no, it's going to be Isaac. It's going to be this other child. Maybe Ishmael, by his works or something he was doing, God chose not to choose him. And so he gives us this other example to clarify it's not nationality and it's not works. And Paul even says that so clearly here. And so what he's saying is, and he uses this example of Jacob and Esau, is here are these two children that are twins, same mother, in the womb at the same time. And he even tells us in verse 11 that they've not yet been born and they've done nothing good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue because of him who calls. And what he's saying is it's all owed to God's sovereign choice in this before they've done anything. He says the older will serve the younger. And so Jacob uh, will be over Esau. Now, this is why this is important, at least culturally. Esau's born first, even though they're twins. The firstborn had the birthright and the blessings and all the things that come with that. And that was really, really important in the culture. But God says to Rebecca before they're ever born, no, the, the older is going to serve the younger. The opposite of every social convention that you're used to is not going to take place. In this case, I am choosing Jacob to be the son of the promise that the line of Jesus is going to come through, that I'm going to bless the world through. And so he tells them that. Now, when you read that on his face, one of the difficult things when you're reading through is it gets down to verse 13. It says, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And you read that and you go, I don't like the way that feels, right? I mean, it's okay to say that. It seems kind of like, wait a second, he just doesn't like this one at all. In Hebrew, that idea of hated has to do with in comparison. Uh, I'll give you an example. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to hate your mother and your brother and your sister and your father. Come follow me. And what he means is in comparison, my love, your love for Jesus, it should look like hate every other relationship in your life. It's a comparison language. Similarly here, I'm going to bless Jacob with all these blessings that are going to come down. I'm going to bless the whole world through him. And so that's kind of what he's saying there. So don't let that trip you up. But the point here that he's getting at by using the second example of Jacob and Esau is to show us that it doesn't rest with them, but God who chooses. That it's God's sovereign choice in this. And so not all of Israel is Israel. You're not saved by being a physical descendant of Abraham. You're saved by coming into this relationship with God by grace, through faith, trusting him, and that that happens by God choosing his sovereign choice. And so not all of Israel is Israel. God's promises have not failed, but God has done exactly what he said he was going to do, and his purposes continue. And so Paul says this. And by the way, it's in keeping with the Abrahamic covenant. I think sometimes we get tripped up on that. 
But the Abrahamic covenant was God was going to bless the world through his seed, which is ultimately Jesus. And I'm going to go to all nations and bring all people. So God chose Israel to be the line in which this comes through, to bless the world, to show what he's like. But ultimately, it was to point to Jesus to bring people to himself. And it was never just about the nation, but about God's glory. And so that's what Paul's saying here. And he's telling us that. And it's a difficult thing to hear that he's saying he chooses who he chooses and he does so. And none of his promises are failed. And not all of Israel is Israel because it's up to God's choice. And so the question comes, how do you feel about that? How do you wrestle with that when he says that? Like when you read verse 11 and he says they were not yet born. And they've done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And we go, well, that seems kind of unfair. I, I think that's the way most people, we go, wait a second, I'm not sure about that. Well, Paul anticipates that. He, he figures that's going to be the response, that God is unfair. How can you say that? And so verse 14, look at what he says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So he anticipates that that's going to be the question. Right? God's promises haven't failed because not all of Israel is Israel. God has chosen and the ones he's chosen are there and they're his and he's done that. And you go, well, wait a second, that's not fair. And he says, you can't say that. Verse 14, is there injustice with God? By no means. But then listen to what he says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And so it's hard to miss the implication when you look at verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, or verse 16 where he says it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Or you go back and you look at verse 11 and it says that his purpose of election might continue. And so Paul says God chooses and God is sovereign to do so and that it's his sovereign choice. And so Paul says you might think this is unfair, but by no means, let me tell you why. And, and I'm going to be honest. He says, let me tell you why, by no means. And then he says something that almost sounds worse. Right? You're like, okay, so what's the answer? Because God has mercy on whom he has mercy. And you go, wait, what? I, I, was, I was reading old notes from a Bible study I did years ago. And the author of the Bible study said, at first, this sounds like an arbitrary bully. And I went, yeah, kind of. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. But then the next line was, until we reflect further. And so I want us to really think about what he's saying. Really wrestle with what it says when God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. First of all, what is the definition of mercy? How do we think about that? How do we even get to that? And so I want us just to think about that for a second, what the the definition of, of mercy is. And, and the definition of mercy, when we look at it and, and we think about it, is God uh, bringing help to the wretched. It's very literally what it means when we do the kind of word study in the Bible. Or uh, being kind and forbearing or showing uh, towards an offender 
mercy or, or towards an enemy, uh, showing mercy towards an enemy. Does that make sense? Like someone who doesn't deserve it, giving them what they don't deserve. It's very closely related to grace. Undeserved merit. I'm not giving you what you deserve, but I'm having mercy on someone who doesn't deserve it. And so if you think about the context of Romans, you think about everything that Paul said to this point, everything scripture tells us, right? If we go back to chapter one, we talked about this last week. Chapter one, verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he goes on to say, none of us has an excuse. We can see it in creation. It's in our conscience. Our conscience bears witness to us. We know this to be true. And all of us have ignored God and the world he created. All of us have rebelled against him. And so he gets to the end uh, of his argument that starts in chapter 1 and it ends in chapter 3 in verse 19. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We're all guilty before God, right? That's the whole point of of chapters 1 to first half of chapter 3. And Paul makes that point. And so when we think about the definition of mercy being bringing help to the wretched or being compassionate and showing forbearance to an offender or an enemy, here's the question. Who deserves mercy? Who is God under obligation to to show mercy? Or maybe another way to say it, to whom is mercy owed? And the answer is no one. By definition, when we say that's unfair, right? By definition, mercy is giving us what we don't deserve. It's undeserved by its very definition. And so when we want to say that's unfair, that's unfair that he would show mercy to some, that he would have mercy on whom he has mercy because that's unfair. But what is true is the opposite of that. If God gave us what was fair, he would show mercy to no one. But God is gracious. And so he chooses to have mercy on whom he has mercy. And so I was wrestling with that and going back over that and thinking about those, all of that coming together. And I had a quote written down from John Stott. John Stott was a, a brilliant Bible scholar, uh, loved the Lord. And he, and he says this, Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. It sounds like a complete non sequitur, but it's not. It simply indicates that the question itself is misconceived. Because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. And so he has mercy on whom he has mercy. And he's perfectly just to do that because no one deserves mercy. But then what about 17 and 18? Because there's another difficult thing he says there. Verse 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, Paul's going back to the Old Testament. He's taking a story that his audience would know and know well. He's talking about uh, the, the interchange between Moses and Pharaoh, Exodus 4 to 14. And if you know that story, Uh, It's the ten plagues. God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go as the Israelites are in slavery there. And he says, no, 
And so then there's plagues that happen, the ten plagues that unfold. And if you read through the whole of that story, what you get in Exodus is what he's talking about here in verse 18 when he says he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. If you read closely in that account in Exodus, it tells us at multiple times that Pharaoh hardens his heart towards the Lord. And so he has this hard heart and says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And he says, I will not let the people go. But then at about half the plagues, it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so sometimes it says he hardened his own heart. And sometimes it says the Lord hardened his heart. And so Paul's making reference to that here when he says he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And so we just said uh, mercy is undeserved that we're sinful people, we don't deserve it. But then here he's talking about God hardening people's hearts. And that causes all sorts of questions and concerns. And wait a second, how does that work? And how can that be right? And the part of it is, is we go to thinking, well, there's a good person who's kind of morally neutral, and then God goes, no, 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 I'm going to harden their heart so I can show what I'm doing in this. And that's biblically inaccurate. That's not true. Right. Romans one to three. There are no one is good. No one seeks God. We all rebel. We have all hardened our own hearts. We've all turned against him. And so what is that idea that God just hardened his heart to make it that way? That's not true. God doesn't harden good people's hearts. No, that's not what's happening. If you think about Pharaoh and his story before he ever meets Moses, before that ever happens, he has a very hard heart towards God. If you know anything about the Pharaoh in Egypt, he saw himself as a god to be worshipped. He was over all things. Uh, if you read through in Exodus and the story of, of the way the Pharaohs operated, you've got the story where Moses is fleeing for his life because Pharaoh's indiscriminately killing children because the Israelites are reproducing too quickly. And he's worried they're going to take his power, so he's willing to kill children to keep his power. Pretty hard heart. And so what we have, though, is how does that go together, that God hardens their hearts, but yet Pharaoh had a hard heart? And I think the answer is real clearly in Romans chapter 1. Right? If you flip back just to Romans chapter 1, what we talked about when he says we are without excuse, every single one of us, we've all sinned, we've all rebelled against God. And it says, verse 21 of chapter 1, although they knew God, they did not honor God Honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He said they're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And that's all of us apart from the grace of God in our life. We make it all about us and we worship the things of this world. And he says, as they persist in that and they continue in that, look at what it says in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That's verse 24. 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so when we think about this idea of our hard hearts and God hardening our hearts, it's, it's what he's talking about in chapter 1. That God says, fine, have your way. Okay, Pharaoh. The only reason his heart wasn't that hard to begin with was because of God's common grace showing him and constraining him and then finally says, okay, have your way. And so he says God is just as he is completely within his rights to have mercy on whom he has mercy, just as he is within his rights to harden who he will to, to remove and say, fine, have your way. 
And so Paul says both of those. He says God is not unjust to do so. And so if you summarize those first two, not all of Israel is Israel, that God chooses, that his purpose of election would stand. It has nothing to do with works or ethnicity. It has nothing to do within you, but God chooses, and it's completely his sovereign choice. And he's perfectly just to do so, because none of us deserves mercy. And if he saves any, he's being infinitely merciful. That's the first half. We're going to stop there, and we'll pick up with his next argument on, is he just to then bring punishment or hold accountable to those that are hardened? And that's another difficult one. But as we stop there, I want us just to think about this for a second together. I know there's some difficult things to wrestle with in what Paul says here and his reasoning. But I want to say to you something that we say every week here and we come back to because I think it ends here if you really follow this all the way through. That we are saved by grace. That even your ability to believe is God's grace to you. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. And then when you follow this all the way through what he's saying, that his purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Or verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What he's saying is, God loves you because he loves you. You are saved because he has saved you. And it is completely and totally owing to him and nothing else. And you have nowhere to go with that except for grateful thankfulness to who God is. That's it. When you want to go, well, I'm chosen. Yeah, do you understand what he just said? He chooses based on nothing in you. And as soon as we kind of well up of look at me, it's like, no, it's not how it works. It is by grace. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, period. And that, what that does and what that should do to all of us, is from, it should bring in us a profound humility and gratitude. You are saved by the grace of God, the end. It is nothing in you. And that's almost hard for us to hear. Our sinfulness wants to go, well, I'm a pretty good person. Of course I'm in No, it's his choosing, his mercy. He is sovereign over all. God loves you because he loves you, period. He chose. And that's hard for us to hear. But I tell you that when we see that, that it's all him and it's nothing in us, it brings us to this place of gratitude and humility. Brings us to this place of, of what we sang here this morning. And he says, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. It is only God's mercy to you. But then the second thing I would say to you, as we think about that, okay, well, there's a lot here that I'm not sure how I feel about it. And I'm not sure how that works or I'm wrestling with those things, but I would bring you to this. It puts us in a place of complete and total reliance on God for everything. You can't argue someone into faith. You can't save anyone. You can't, in you, don't have the ability to do it, that it is God's sovereign choice. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. And so it puts us in a place of utter and total reliance on him for everything. Everything. 
There's no place to go but to fall on your face before him. That he is God and you are not. And to wrestle with the truth of who he is. And I'll tell you, I said at the beginning, like different times being humbled. And this week, coming to the end of that and going, it's all I have. It's all God and nothing else. But God is good. And we know that. And his purposes are not his, our purposes. And we don't know exactly how all that works. And so we trust him. And we continue to rely on him in all things. And that's all we have. And so I just say to you, I know we've just jumped into like the deep end of a whole lot of things. And we're just touching on them. And so let this continue to be a conversation where we let God's word stand over us in all things. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the who you are, that you are the sovereign Lord over all. And I pray that when it pushes us to the limits of our understanding, I pray that you would remind us uh, that it is a good thing that you are so far beyond us, that it is a good thing that we can't understand all your ways and all your, your workings. And so I pray that you would increase our faith that you would help us to rest in you, to continue to look to you and trust you in all things, that you are a merciful and good God, and that we know this to be true, and I pray that we would rest in you in all things. Give us uh, just a continued growth in our understanding. I pray that you would greatly uh, work in us a, a deeper and more profound humility and love for you and love for others. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. We now get to celebrate, as we do each week, uh, 